Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy New Year! We made it to 2023. On today's program, we'll look back at 2022 one more time. First, I'll check in with Chicago's Commissioner of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, Erin Harkey. We'll talk about her first full year in that role and her thoughts about what's ahead. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to discuss some of the biggest theater stories of the past year and their favorite productions. And later, WDCB's own Paula Bella and Leslie Karras will stop by to talk about their favorite jazz albums of 2022. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. Years from now, when we look back at the local arts sector in 2022, what are we going to remember? It was an interesting year on many fronts, as it felt like things were getting closer to what they were like in 2019, pre-pandemic. 2022 started with a thud as COVID rates skyrocketed in the early part of the year, but things improved and many of the safety restrictions that curbed in-person events in 2020 and 2021 gradually lifted this past year. Theater performances and concerts were presented to in-person audiences again. Museums reopened to full capacity and many festivals returned. Of course, the long-term impacts on the institutions and organizations that support and present the arts is still to be determined. Some patrons still aren't ready to return to in-person events. Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events is trying to do its part by supporting the local creative sector. DCASE increased direct financial support for the arts sector from $2.7 million in 2021 to $12.7 million this past year. General operating support to nonprofits arts organizations through the City Arts Program increased 223%, and the Individual Artist Program, which provides direct support to artists, increased its average grant size by 60%. I recently caught up with DK's Commissioner Erin Harkey to get her thoughts on the past 12 months. 2022 was Harkey's first full year in the DK's executive role. We talked about what stood out to her from the past year and looked ahead to 2023. When you think back to this past year, really your first full year in the position, how did it go? I think it went really well. I'm really proud of the progress that we've been able to make as an agency in just a short amount of time. We've done a lot, I think, to grow as an agency, sort of expand the reach of our services and really support the cultural community as it continues to recover, right, from the COVID-19 pandemic. So like expanding size, scope, and and geographically? Yeah, all of that. Um, So I think, um, as you might know, we saw a transformational influx of resources this past year in our budget. So our grants budget went from 
2.7 million to 12.7 million, which is a, a huge seismic jump um, that allowed us both to increase the number of grants that we made. So we made about 630 grants last year, which was a 25% increase from the year previously, and also enabled us to give larger grants to organizations. So City Arts, which is our organizational grant program, gives grants to arts and cultural organizations. We were able to give larger general operating grants that increased by like 223%. So we were able to do that. And then of course the kind of geographic distribution also increased. So now we're servicing um, all 50 wards as compared to 38 wards in 2016. So we spoke in mid-January of 2022, and one of the things that, that came up at that time was this initiative that was like an outreach, uh, I think it was called like uh, Funding and Futures or something like that. Yeah, I think we were having a um, sort of discussion with the cultural community about what their actual needs were, right? Um, so a lot of the grant programs that we're doing, the programs that we're doing are really informed by our conversations with the cultural community, um, the data that we're getting back from the cultural community and that we're doing through uh, with research and evaluation partners. So hopefully the decisions that we're making are you know, really informed by that community engagement and that data piece so that we're really directing resources in the right direction. Did you get good stuff out of that outreach and is that ongoing? Yeah, we definitely got really good stuff out of that. Um, and I think we've, you know, continued to do that community engagement. We've been, you know, convening the performing arts community in particular, you know, that's still seeing, um, you know, some challenges because of changes in, you know, audience behavior. I think, you know, people, uh, you know, don't recognize because we are, you know, going out and experiencing culture, but our, you know, performing arts organizations in particular are still seeing anywhere from, you know, 30 to 50% losses in their, you know, kind of operating revenue. Uh, so we've been, you know, consistently convening um, members of the performing arts community, both our, you know, music venues, our dance organizations, our theaters, um, to, you know, have, you know, conversations about kind of what the needs are. Um, and so we've been both having conversations with them and developing programs that are ho hopefully responsive to their needs at the current moment. Would you say, uh, I realize that every uh, organization, every entity is, has different needs and, and wants, but are a lot of the things you're hearing still pandemic related? Because there was already organizations were facing things before pre-pandemic, but then all of a sudden these new problems, so are you still, are a lot of the things you're still well, seeing pandemic related? I think that the pandemic didn't necessarily create new problems, just could have exasperated already existing problems that were, you know, uh, brewing as it were right and so made I think challenges harder and I think you know one of the big things is just you know changes in audience behavior people got out of the habit right of experiencing culture we also got really comfortable right in our homes and so it takes I think a lot more to kind of entice audiences to you know come and see shows right so it is both I think a question of you know how do we re-engage audiences that were familiar yeah you know with theater and or live events or going to museums and then the second opportunity which I think is also really exciting and something that we shouldn't lose sight of is how do we engage all of those people that were not engaged previously right we have an opportunity to to rethink um, and to really be um, more inclusive more equitable right when we think about building audiences for culture 
So when I think back to 2022, uh, one of the things I guess will stick out for me is uh, the return of uh, summer music festivals. Uh, DK's supported uh, music festivals like Jazz Fest and Blues Fest, uh, the House Music Fest, Gospel Fest. Um, how did those go for you? Um, this year was really fun. I think they are, you know, much um, much more like they were, you know, prior to the pandemic, although that there are some, you know, changes that we've made to the format that we started during the pandemic that we've uh, continued, which are the, you know, neighborhood components of these festivals. So, you know, jazz has, uh, leading up to the performances in Millennium Park, we now have 10 days of, you know, uh, performances that we're developing in collaboration with arts and cultural organizations throughout the city that people can experience. Um, you know, house music has a concert in Millennium Park, but we, you know, partnered with Rebuild Foundation to do something. There's a house, uh, you know, uh, music tour that we do. Um, and then the Blues Festival also had, uh, you know, a, an adjacent Blues Festival that we did in Austin as part oh, yeah. of the program. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about, you know, them kind of returning to their, their full splendor in, in Millennium Park, but also, I think, um, deeply excited about the opportunity to really connect the city through these programs. And then uh, 2022 was the year of Chicago dance. I don't know if you're allowed to, to talk about this, but any thoughts on continuing that uh, tradition of like the year of? Yeah, well, I think um, this is actually officially going to kind of sunset our year of initiatives. We've gone through, I think, several iterations of them. Um, and year of Chicago dance was a lot of fun. And I think we took a you know, slightly different approach in that we were really able to, I think, invest in um, you know, long-standing dance service organizations like, you know, Chicago Dance Makers and See Chicago Dance and the Black Dance Legacy Project that did a fantastic uh, performance last summer in uh, Millennium Park. Um, so we really invested in those organizations to hopefully, you know, build the kind of um, infrastructure and capacity within those service organizations and with the, the dance community as a whole to, you know, think about long-term strategic planning in terms of how the city supports uh, dancers and dance makers. So um, I'm really excited about, you know, what we were able to accomplish this year. But I think that the, you know, challenges that um, the arts and culture sector faces in this moment, I think, requires a much more kind of intersectional approach in terms of looking at um, things much more holistically and seeing how, you know, different disciplines um, can really, you know, relate to one another. I think culture, you know, doesn't necessarily, um, you know, operate in a silo, right? And so we need to think about interrelatedness and interconnectivity and like and shared needs and kind of uh, try to address things, you know, in ways that are more about systems than I think about isolated disciplines. But I think there's a lot of learning from, you know, our year of initiatives, especially around, you know, marketing of culture in the city that are, you know, we can build on. We're also going to be taking some of the learnings from the year of Chicago music that actually extended right during the pandemic and was the year of before uh, the year of Chicago dance and doing a kind of deeper dive on the music industry through a music industry study. So, you know, we're trying to ex extrapolate, I think, you know, learnings from those years into more kind of a strategic policy and program development so we can, you know, support the sector more broadly. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with DK's commissioner, Aaron Harkey. Looking ahead to, to 2023, 
Do you know what if the budget will be like similar to what it was this year? Yeah, so we uh, still, you know, thankfully, um, thanks to the advocacy of Mayor Lightfoot and, you know, our elected officials uh, were, you know, able to retain that $10 million that we got from the corporate budget was a new source of funding for us. So um, our grant program will, will remain stable uh, next year. And so we'll continue to see that level of grant making that we saw this year. Uh, we also have another uh, $10 million in ARPA funding uh, that we're going to be releasing. So there'll be a special grant program uh, at the beginning of this year that'll be um, more along the lines of, you know, additional Additionally, helping uh, arts and cultural organizations continue to, um, uh, you know, rebound from from COVID, um, more along the lines of, you know, helping organizations make transitions, rethink missions, um, and do, you know, critical kind of infrastructure, strategic planning, marketing, and audience development work. So we're excited about announcing those guidelines early next year. I know that also then gets into like how organizations want to develop, but do you have broader sense on, on how some of those arts organizations are adapting post? I mean, we're not out of the pandemic, I guess, but we're coming out of it. I think, you know, people are asking really thoughtful questions, really thoughtful questions about, you know, what it means to be an arts organization and what it means to again, adapt and, and build, I think, you know, new audiences. I think it will require greater collaboration among agencies. I'm loving seeing, you know, larger organizations bring in smaller organizations into the fold to, you know, per perform on stages through, you know, residency programs. So I think it's going to, you know, really incentivize a lot more collaboration across the sector, which I think will be really, really exciting. Um, you know, and I think, you know, there will be, you know, moments of shrinking, moments of growth, moments of adaptation, and, you know, every organization is different, but uh, I think we're, you know, trying to provide as many tools and resources as we possibly, possibly can to, you know, help organizations find their own individual ways to forward. Speaking of uh, collaboration, I think I read something that, like, even within the, the city, DKS was working with some other departments on programming. Yeah, we've, that's one of the, I think, biggest uh, highlights for me personally. I'm a, you know, art and kind of community development person, so I love to see, you know, the intersection of the arts you know, popping up in lots of different areas uh, across the city. I'm going to try to highlight just a couple of them um, because there are, there's a lot of that happening, which is pretty exciting. So this past year, we launched the first artist in residence in a CPL branch at Legler Regional Library. Um, Alexandra Antoine is the uh, artist in residence there. So she's been working, you know, with uh, the local librarians and the community to develop uh, community-based programs and is working on a final project now. We've also obviously been working really closely with the Department of Planning through uh, the Invest Southwest project. So we've been working with artists to, um, you know, help develop um, public art planning uh, documents. Uh, one of the big influxes of resources we also received uh, last year was, uh, you know, $15 million uh, through the capital plan to do public art in neighborhoods. So um, those artists have been working to kind of help shape, right, what those dollars will look like in our neighborhoods. Um, and then we've also been working really closely uh, with DPD and other, you know, city partners on uh, the We Will Chicago uh, plan, which is the first citywide plan since 1967. It's uh, DPD's. Oh, uh, the Department of Planning and Development. 
Um, so artists have really been embedded in that process throughout, not just on the kind of arts and culture piece, but really, you know, looking at economic development, housing and neighborhoods, environment, you know, lifelong learning. And so they've been leading uh, the engagement around that. And we've actually hired um, a, a team of artists who will be uh, developing projects which explore the recommendations in the plan. So that's pretty exciting to just see how art and culture, you know, relates to lots of different uh, things that the city is trying to accomplish. So then just to bring it uh, full circle, anything in particular like, stand out when you think about the past year, 2022, like, like a favorite memory? Oh, gosh. Hmm. You know, I think there was a, the opening of the Millennium Park music series uh, last year was a lot of fun. We had a, uh, it was with uh, Femi Kuti. Uh, uh, and I just remember the energy of being back and exploring live music with a live audience and just seeing people so, so excited. That was one of, I think, highlights of the things that we produced last year. One of my other favorite programs I mentioned that we have, you know, taken some of DK's signature festivals into neighborhoods. Uh, one of those programs is the Taste of Chicago. So we did a Taste of Chicago pop-up in Pullman. Um, and that's, I think, was the second year uh, that we did it there, and that audience is starting to grow. And of course, Pullman is such a beautiful neighborhood and such a sweet group of people in that community that are really enjoying like being out and listening to music and having food. So um, those were just a couple of uh, events that we helped produce that I think really stood out. And of course, I'm super, super proud of um, the progress that we've been able to make as a grant maker and especially proud that the programs that we've designed are really helping, I think, uh, equity across the city. I'll also mention one more because I think this was also a big highlight um, was the Together We Heal uh, project that we launched with the Office of Racial Equity and Justice. We were, uh, it was funded through ARPA recovery uh, dollars, really funding projects, um, kind of creative placemaking, placekeeping projects that are really looking at how arts help to support health and vitality in our neighborhoods. And uh, we uh, funded 48 grantees uh, through that particular program. And it was really, really exciting um, because, uh, you know, when we had the, the kind of dedication of that, not dedication's not the right word, but the celebration announcement of those grantees. There were so many people uh, and organizations that this or that DCASE had not previously funded before, right? Um, and so I think that the way that we shaped that particular program um, really brought a new lens to creative cultural cultural development, cultural funding that really brought new voices to the table. So I'm excited to see where those um, grants uh, end up going and we're going to be uh, facilitating those over the next two years. Erin, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. That was Erin Harkey. She's the commissioner of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events. You can find updates on what's going on with DCASE by visiting chicago.gov. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Happy New Year. 
And as we welcome in a new year, we wanted to take one more look back at 2022 and talk about some of your favorite productions from the past 12 months. I also wanted to to take a broader look at the current state of Chicago theater. If we think back to, to 2020, once the severity of the pandemic was clear, we knew the road back was going to be challenging and gradual as far as returning to the way things were. There was some hope in 2021, and we saw in-person events return, though there were a number of hiccups along the way. I feel like 2022 marked a significant turning point. COVID is still around, but performing arts presenters, including theater companies, were able to get through their seasons pretty much without interruption once they got started. I think it's fair to say we're not all the way back. Some people still aren't comfortable attending performances. But Jonathan, uh, 2022 did feel like an important step forward. I think you've summarized it very well. This has been the year of the comeback kid, uh, as we can call live theater. Uh, We didn't have uh, an absolutely full season. A lot of theaters didn't return to live production until the fall. So we are in, you know, a 2022-2023, if you consider September to, say, June, will be our first full season, as it were, our first full production year on the comeback trail. And it's good to have you know, all the theaters, just about all of them, back working live. We did lose a small number, but fewer than we expected. But theaters are still pretty much across the board working to regain audiences. During the shutdown, they lost subscribers. They have to rebuild the subscriber base and also get single ticket sales back up to what they were. And there's nothing like, you know, successful productions to do that. And we're looking forward to many of them. Right. And I think one thing you and I would probably agree on, Jonathan, is that some of the shows that were selected seem to be done with an eye towards the bottom line, which is not, which is completely understandable. I think there were some smaller cast productions. I also noticed a lot of shows that were running straight through without intermission. I don't know if that was to kind of coax people with shorter attention spans back in or if it was still part of a COVID, uh, you know, caution sort of thing. Certainly some productions, I know uh, Bald Sisters, which we just reviewed at Steppenwolf, had to cancel some performances over the holiday, although they have extended to the 21st, but uh, due to some COVID uh, infections in the, in the cast. And I guess the lesson would be make sure that all theaters have understudies ready to go because there are still reports of people being out, and, and not just for COVID, but also you know, the other seasonal ailments that are, that are going along. So, But, yeah, um, well, yeah I, it definitely seems that audiences are coming back. It may be a little bit on the slow side, and it's hard for us to judge because we're usually there opening nights when the seats are fairly well-packed. But, yeah, I, I think that there are some signs of some great lights along the way this year that are giving me hope. Yeah, and you make a, a good point by extension. If you are going to see theater, you should bring a mask along because particularly the smaller off-loop theaters are still requiring in, in individual cases that audience members wear masks because audience and performers are often so very close together. So right. be prepared for that. One of the other trends, Carrie, and you and I have noted this before, is that during the shutdown over the pandemic, not entirely just in the year 2022, it goes back a little further, but we've seen more transitions in leadership than ever before in one, in one fell swoop. We have seen numerous artistic directors as well as business leaders, executive directors mm-hmm. and managing letters, direct directors depart, some retiring, a handful let go for various reasons. Uh, and others moving on to other opportunities. We have seen such transitions at the very top, at the Goodman Theater, at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, 
uh, the Writers Theater, Gift Theater, Teatro Vista, Raven Theater, Steep Theater, Timeline Theater, and even the League of Chicago Theaters, which has a new executive director. And I might have left out a few others uh, along the way. We're not going to give you all the names. That would be mm-hmm. fairly yeah. meaningless. But there has been a lot of shakeup, and it's too early to tell uh, you know exactly what the profile, uh, artistic profile of many theater companies will be in the next couple of years. Right, and there's also been a building boom. Some of this is already underway, but Northlight has broken ground and is planning on moving back to downtown Evanston, where it all started for them. American Blues and, uh, well, Steep has actually already moved into a new building just down the street from their rental facility on Berwyn. Uh, it's an old, they've taken over an old Christian Science reading room and just got a huge grant from the city, so they'll be building that out. American Blues... Yes, in Edgewater. Yeah. American Blues is uh, taking a place just north of uh, Lincoln Square on Lincoln um, and building out something there. Uh, Timeline is continuing with their plans for their space in Uptown. So uh, I.O. has come back, and The Gift yeah. is also uh, going to be opening a new space in Jefferson Park. I don't think they've announced the location yet, mm-hmm. but I think they are in the, uh, the, the silent, be, silent stage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Right. So I, th- I take all of that as a good sign that people are, you know, moving moving forward and thinking about what they can do with their spaces. And particularly, yeah. I was struck by Steep talking about how they really wanted to be able to have more community engagement space, which I think Timeline, American Blues, you know, really does speak to the idea that community engagement is increasingly, you know, like a parallel season or a parallel mission with what a lot of these theaters are doing, almost as much as the work that they're, you know, putting out in their seasons. Yeah, indeed. The energy does seem good, with the exception of one monumental muddle of the year. (laughs) And that would be the Tony Award-winning Victory Gardens Theater uh, at the Biograph on Lincoln Avenue, a theater nearly 50 years old, which has ceased operations as a producing organization as of this moment. And it has been a managerial mess since Che Yu, the artistic director of nine years since he stepped down in 2019, which had been planned for, but they have gone through two artistic directors, or two, one was called an executive director, two uh, leadership changes since then, and details that are beginning to come out, and a lot of them are still not known, but is of an increasingly poisonous story of intense intrigue among the Victory Garden staff, negativity, accusations against the board and also by the board and a new artistic director fired for cause and nobody is revealing the entire story we don't know when that will happen but it is a mess and the victory gardens theater is not going to be a artistic producing organization it may as well just fold its tents well and i think that may be happening last time i checked their website was down I did do a year-in-review piece on this for the Chicago Reader, and after a long silence, the board did come out and say that the last artistic director, Ken Matt Martin, that one of the reasons they... They didn't come right out and say this is why they let him go, but they implied that there had been no progress made towards selecting the upcoming season. Conversations I had with now former staff members indicated that, well, no, that is actually not true, that maybe not everything had been signed on the dotted line, but there were formal and informal agreements for a full season of four plays. So, yes, intrigue is the word for it. I'm just as confounded and really kind of heartbroken. Um, we'll be talking about some of our favorite shows a little later in the program, but right now I'll tell you that Colored Wada at Victory Gardens, Erica Dickerson Dispenza's portrait of 
three generations of black women in Flint, Michigan, dealing with that city's water crisis was the last piece done at Victory Gardens. And I can't help but draw parallels to that situation. And yeah, the Flint water crisis and a theater closing, I know, are not not exactly the same thing. But they're both stories where you look at this and think this did not have to happen the way that it did. I'm not exactly sure what could have been different given the personalities involved, given the trajectory, but it definitely feels like something that that did not have to happen. My understanding is that there was not a huge deficit or financial, uh, you know, a crunch at the theater, no more so certainly than a lot of other theaters coming out of of the pandemic. So we may or may not learn more, but I think you're probably right, Jonathan, that uh, confoundingly and heartbreakingly, Victory Garden seems to no longer be in the pantheon of Chicago theater. So that was kind of a nice brief recap of some of the developments we saw in the Chicago theater scene over the past year. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel, and they're going to share some of their favorite productions from the past year. Let's start with you, Carrie. What sticks out when you start to think about what you saw in 2022? In a general way, you know, I just mentioned for the new spaces that are going up, like it's steep and it's timeline that there is a real concern for making space for community engagement. So I'd like to give a shout out to some shows that really engage the community, that were really about community and took us into communities. One of those was the really interesting experience, Laughing Song, with Theater Y, which is located in North Lawndale. They've been doing these sort of ambulatory shows for the last few years. This one, they uh, collaborated with Marvin Tate, who is a well-known storyteller, a musician in Chicago who grew up in North Lawndale. It was a four-hour ambulatory show, and that may sound daunting, but I found it absolutely fascinating. It combined the stories of George W. Johnson, who was the first black recording artist in America, and his story sort of, you know, was the uh, set the tone for what happened to a lot of black recording artists in history with being denied royalties and being left rather impecunious, even though, you know, they sold a ton of records. Um, with the stories of Kate's own uh, childhood in North Lawndale. So you got a little bit about gentrification, about you know the deliberate defunding and segregation and redlining, but also some very joyous stories about the neighborhood and uh, took us through parks, took us through some areas that certainly I was not familiar with. So again, four hours worth every moment, right up to the free communal chicken dinner at the end. So I think that was one of the most, at least one of the most unique experiences I had. Uh, a couple other shows that felt a little bit more like ritual, perhaps, as much as theater. What to Send Up When It Goes Down, which Congo Square produced twice. I saw it the second time when it was downtown at the Looking Glass space, um, and it won a Jeff Award. Um, it, it, it was really about commemorating and exploring the role of police violence um, and, and uh, in, the, in the black community, but also about uh, modes of resistance, modes of remembrance. You were very much brought into it as an audience member. This was not a, you know, sit back and watch kind of experience, and it was not designed to be so. Um, so those are two that really come to mind for me as something that were, that shows that were, you know, not, not passive experiences by any means. <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite shows of the year was a three-character play, The Luckiest, produced uh, by the Raven Theatre Company in Edgewater. It's a play by Melissa Ross, and if I say it's a buddy comedy about a woman who develops ALS, that doesn't sound very promising, but it sure was. And the, uh, the comedy aspects of it were a brilliant counterpoint to the fundamental seriousness of the story as the woman becomes progressively shows greater symptoms 
she is torn between her overprotective mother and her best friend, who really becomes her care provider. And the sto- it was beautifully acted and directed, and all the comic moments were right on target and sharp, and all the uh, more emotional moments, the deeper emotion, you know, deeper emotions, also were believable and and right on target. And I just liked it so very very much. I think it exemplified all that is best about Chicago actors and Chicago off-loop theater. The luckiest at Raven Theater Company, small free character play. Um, if I can bounce to another much larger production that was also one of my favorites. And it was uh, the James Yams play produced by the Steppenwolf Theater Company, the most lamentable uh, trial of Ms. Martha Washington, uh, a wickedly satirical history pageant about America's original sin, enslavement, uh, centering on our, our real first first lady, Martha Washington, as she lay a-dying in 1802, and acted out as if it were a musical, meaning there was wonderful choreography, there were, in fact, some musical moments. And looking at the issues uh, both of, of enslavement from the perspective of one who owns enslaved individuals, and also, of course, from the perspective of those who are enslaved. And it was an intriguing and heady and wonderfully theatrical mixture in a fine production at Steppenwolf. I'd say Steppenwolf had a very good year this year. I don't know how you feel about it, Jonathan. I know we disagreed on Bald Sisters. I I still maintain that it's an excellent show. But even aside from that, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Steppenwolf is their theater for young uh, adults, uh, Steppenwolf for young adults. And this year they presented 1919, created by J. Nicole Brooks out of Eve L. Ewing's collections of, collection of poems by the same name. Brooks's script really skillfully tied together the past and the present, the death of Eugene Williams in July 1919, tied into ongoing issues of segregation and injustice in the city. But there's also a great deal of joy and pride, and as you mentioned with, uh, with Ms. Martha Washington, also a show I greatly enjoyed, just a terrific ensemble. So I, I always look forward to what they create in the, in the Young Adult series, and sometimes it, it, it's always absolutely the equal of anything that's on the, in the main season. So. Yeah. Uh, Bald Sisters, which is the current show at Steppenwolf, and you and I talked about it uh, with Gary uh, two weeks ago, uh, has just been extended at Steppenwolf Theater Company for, uh, I, I think it's a week or a two-week Yeah, extension. I think it's to January 21st, if I recall yeah, that. that's a, so, a yeah, so if you're extension. curious, you still yeah. have time to see it. <laughs> yeah. Another one of my favorites, and again, another example of acting at its best in Chicago, was Molly Sweeney the wonderful play by Irish playwright Brian Friel, which was staged by the Irish Theatre of Chicago. And again, this is one of those three-character plays, very, very intense, about a woman who has been blind since childhood or since birth, who miraculously, in her middle years, uh, has her vision restored. And whether that is actually a blessing or a curse. And it's a very powerful story, that unfolds like you peel an onion, layer by layer by layer. And again, it was beautifully acted by a small ensemble company. Uh, Molly Sweeney, presented by Irish Theatre of Chicago, was one of my favorites. I would uh, like to give a shout-out to two shows of Teatro Vista. I think they came back very strong this year. As you mentioned, they have new leadership. They have uh, co-leadership, two women uh, now running the company. And um, 
which is great. And they pre- presented in the Destinos Festival, a show that you and I both really liked, Jonathan, as I recall, enough to let the light in, uh, Paloma Nazica's ghost story that was really about what we believe, how it affects the way we love, a story of two women who are falling in love, but one of the women has a secret that is of possibly supernatural um, origin. It was chilling, but it was also a very, very heartfelt piece, and I'm still thinking about moments in that show. And then in the uh, category of new musical, they, in the spring, presented Somewhere Over the Border by Brian Quijada. It was a spirited twist on The Wizard of Oz, using his mother's own journey from El Salvador to the U.S. in the late 70s as a sort of parallel story to Dorothy in Oz. Um, Terrific uh, salsa and cumbia score and just some really, really delightful performances. So I'm really happy to see Teatro Vista, um, you know, roaring back, and uh, that hopefully will continue. You know, you mentioned uh, one of their productions, Enough to Let the Light In, and we talked about it on the air. We both liked it. It was directed by Georgette Verdin. Mm-hmm. And we also, much earlier in the year, we discussed another play that she directed at Rivendell Theatre Company, a play called Spay. You know, she, Georgette Verdon, is my pick for Artist of the Year. She has, as a director, she turns, whatever she touches, she turns it into gold. And she's been doing this now for, what, a few years, two years, three years that she's I come on? I think so, the- yeah, yeah. She's definitely would be on my list as well of someone, uh, of, you right. know, top of the list of an artist to be paying close attention to. Absolutely. I think she has a big career, and I wanted to give her a shout-out. My Artist of the Year, Georgette Verdon, the young director. I'd like to add a shout-out to two black women playwrights. Uh, the late Alice Childress got a terrific revival of her 1950s play Trouble in Mind at Timeline. And also at Timeline, uh, Tyler Abercrombie, who some people may know um, from the Showtime series The Shy, wrote a play called Relentless, also set in 1919. 1919 was a big year you know, to explore uh, dramatically uh, on stage in Chicago this year. They were both just wonderful productions, both dealing in some way with seemingly successful black, black people who still face institutional racism. In Trouble in Mind, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's on Broadway, and the, the cast of a play that is written by a white man and has the smacks of white saviorism or trying to find ways to work with the white director on making it less of a stereotypical you know, uh, experience. And then in Tyler Abercrombie's Relentless, we meet two sisters in Philadelphia in 1919 who kind of have to confront the realities of their mother's history as an enslaved woman. So it's about where they've been and where they're going. There were a lot of plays like that this year, which I think is probably... Uh, to be expected coming out of the downtime of the pandemic and also the ongoing uh, legacies of racism in this country, which really came to a boil with the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor um, demonstrations in March of 2020. Well, that was a fun trip down memory lane. I had heard a lot about those productions uh, throughout the year when you would come on the show to review them. So it's always nice to hear what were some of your favorites. With that, we'll say goodbye to 2022. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. You're welcome, welcome, Gary. Happy New Year to you and to all our listeners out there. And you're tuned into the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. We're looking back at 2022 this episode. Next up, we're taking a closer look at this year in jazz. Joining me in studio are DCB jazz hosts Leslie Karras and Paul Abella. Welcome back. Happy New Year. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. 
And we had a little tradition going where you both would come in and talk about your favorite jazz albums of the year. And then last year we took a pause because of um, spiking COVID numbers. We wanted to be safe. We're back. And before we get into your respective lists of best uh, jazz releases uh, from 2022, I just wanted to get a general feel for how the year went and just, I guess, more of like the past three years, obviously, COVID affected uh, every aspect of our lives. And I remember talking in 2020 and asking you about how you felt, you know, the pandemic affected jazz musicians uh, a lot different now, two plus years later, but just your thoughts uh, we'll start with you paul did we see a dip in music production in the jazz realm shockingly no uh what we've seen since covid i think and this was especially clear in 2020 and there were some holdouts into 2021 was like boldness and bravery like you know and you're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic where you don't want to get lots of people into a studio together so what happened more big band records than i've ever seen in my life you know for one um Jasmia Horn deciding, well, I want to do this big project and Concord saying, well, we don't want to fund it. And her going, well, fine, I'll do it on my own then. Wow. You know, and it's just it's kind of crazy, though, too. Uh, one of my very, very, very favorite jazz musicians who's got a great band out and touring these days. Worldwide name. No record contract. Are you going to tell us? I, I, <laughs> I was gonna keep names out of it, but it was John Schofield. His last thing was a was a solo one off for ECM. You know, meanwhile he's got this killing band together. It has no has no record contract. So yeah, there and and the proliferation of just amazing music coming out of our own backyard, which is gonna be showcased in a little bit in both of our uh, lists. But wow, the amount of great music that is just world-beatingly good coming out of Chicago right now. You know, I would add, too, that this past year we were finally able to interview some musicians um, we hadn't been able to interview over the pandemic. And I think one after another just commented on the pandemic as being this odd mixture of a curse and a blessing Mm -hmm. because they weren't able to play, obviously, publicly uh, the way they had been accustomed to for you know, all their lives musically, but they were able to sit back and work on music that they had been thinking about for a while and come up with some really interesting concepts and dig in and really work on the music and have the luxury of being able to do that without interruption. And so I think you're seeing some really interesting music coming out this year. As a result of that, they were able to uh, not only compose the music during the pandemic, but then finally able to record it as well uh, this past year and come out with some stellar albums. I think it was an embarrassment of riches this year, for sure. Can't get out of this mood Can't get over this feeling This is Samara Joy uh, for album Linger A While. So we're going to dive into both of your lists, and this just so happened to be on uh, on both of your lists, so I thought it'd be a good place to start. Leslie, what is it about this album that stuck with you? Well, a lot of things, actually. This is Samara Joy's first uh, album on a major label, Verve Records, and, you know, she won the... Uh, Sarah Vaughn International uh, Vocal Jazz Competition right before the pandemic in 2019. Uh, She came out with her own album a couple years later during the pandemic. 
And that did get a fair amount of attention among, you know, jazz folks. But it was this album that just burst her onto not just the national scene, but the international scene. And she spent the better part of this year touring the world in support not only of this album, but just kind of uh, getting out there and being able to perform in front of large audiences consistently, which she really hadn't been able to do with any regularity before. And this album really shows how she's starting to mature as an artist already at the tender age of 23. And if you look at some of the selections on this album, it's similar to the last album in that she uh, is really drawing on some standards, but perhaps not ones that are regularly uh, recorded. And even in this case, adding lyrics to a Fats Navarro tune called Nostalgia, The Day I Knew. So she is also tackling some well-known pieces as in addition, like Social Call and Misty. But yet, in you know, when she sings them, uh, there's a freshness to her approach. Uh, and yet at the same time, it's well-informed by people who have sung these tunes before. And I think it's that combination that's really alluring and that really stays with you through repeated listenings of the album. It's just a tremendous work by her. And it's really exciting to see her develop as an artist. She's already been in Chicago twice uh, this year at the Hyde Park Jazz Festival and then uh, stint at the Jazz Showcase. And you could already see a difference uh, just in those between those two performances. So I can't uh, recommend this album uh, highly enough. And, you know, every time I nearly every time I play something from the album, a caller, uh, I'll hear from a caller who loves her voice and wants to know more about her and more about the album. So it's kind of funny, and this kind of points to us as Gen Xers for at the age where we are now out of the loop, officially. Because <laughs> what happened in between that first record and that second record was Samara became a TikTok star. Oh, yeah. And so, and there are a couple of uh, singers that have kind of gone that route. And so that's where, you know, I mean, that first record is honestly, I'll tell you, that first record is better than this one. And, you know, because she tackles the way she tackles some of the tunes on that first record, everything happens to me. Like, everybody does this is like totally boring ballad. Oh, my God. <laughs> and she's like, and at that tempo, it pokes fun at these lyrics, which needed to be retired like decades ago. Um, and so there's a lot of that going on here. There's some of that. But still, the clarity of voice comes through. The phrasing comes through. The confidence comes through. That's why it made its way onto, onto my list was like, she's at 23, outside of needing to maybe widen the the catalog a little bit she's fully formed you know i kind of hope that she kind of veronica swifts it a little bit in future records and and explain what you mean by that so veronica swift and cecile mclaurin salvant too they both have when they do stick the great american songbook they infuse it with a lot of tongue-in-cheek and wit and humor and absolutely like, and like do you see what these people were writing about 50 years ago poke 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 <laughs> Which, you know, there's a there's a need for that. But then in Veronica Swift's case, well, it's Cecile McClure and Sylvain's case, too. You know, they're both willing to kind of, you know, cherry pick some newer tunes that work really well in a jazz setting. Samara Joy, yeah, I think if she, you know, kind of weaves her way into some of that or uh, what Candace Springs was doing, too, with, uh, uh, you know, Chardet tunes and some of the other things she's done. She's great. So I, I hope that, yeah, this this is just early first steps and we'll see a lot more from her. Fingers crossed. Yeah, only 23, so that's exciting to even think about what could come next. Moving on, Paul, let's uh, go to your next selection. Uh, you have highlighted an album titled Amaryllis, and this is from Mary Halverson. 
Uh, yeah, an avant-garde guitarist who uh, was trained by Anthony Braxton at uh, Wesleyan and has been all over the New York scene. She's, you know, kind of existed in some real hipster jazz circles. Uh, has done some stuff with Chicago and Tamika Reed. But this is the first time that she's actually had anything close to a major label contract behind her. And she released two albums on Nonesuch on the same day, one of which I'm not mentioning and one of which I am very enthusiastically mentioning. And that one being Amaryllis. And this one, she, she's got some heft like in the arrangements. She's playing with some teeth, how aggressive she's playing. It's, you know, it, it, it's basically everything we'd been promised about Mary Halverson for years that, you know, she was like fully this like jazz and avant-garde and kind of hipster indie rock person all in one. And here she kind of, on, on the best parts of Amaryllis, she totally nails that. And it's fantastic. a tune called Night Shift off that album. And that would be something you would play on Notes from the Jazz Underground. I did a full feature of everything on that record for Notes from the Jazz Underground earlier this year, yeah. Nice. So we'll switch over to, to Leslie. What's next up on your list? Well, I'd like to bring it home to Chicago. You mentioned earlier, Paul, that there were some uh, wonderful albums coming out of our own hometown. And uh, one of those is by a bassist who I think has only been out of grad school a few years, uh, but is just, he, he, you mentioned uh, being brave and mm-hmm. bold, Paul, and that's exactly what he was when he, uh, when he decided to tackle the music of Charles Mingus, this being the Mingus Centennial. Uh, obviously, it's great timing. Um, but, you know, he decided that this would be his first album, which is also pretty amazing when you think about it. It's called Meditations on Mingus. The jazz uh, bassist is uh, Ethan Fillion. He attended DePaul University where he studied with Dana Hall and would bring Dana Hall some of his charts of Mingus music and get some of his feedback. And so over time, this project took shape. Uh, Ethan Fillion recruited some uh, nine or ten other musicians to join him here in Chicago on this recording. And I think one of the things that strikes me about it is that the ensemble manages to sound cohesive and yet free at the same time. So I think he didn't want to overscript them, and that comes out in this album. Um, And I think that that's partly because of his respect for um, Mingus's approach as well. He also doesn't really call attention to himself that much. You don't hear lots of bass solos uh, in this music. You really hear a lot of ensemble playing with Ethan Fillion perhaps setting the tempo or providing the initial riff. And then I think he takes just a couple of solos here or there. Uh, also, uh, he takes some chances with some of the material. And he added a coda to uh, one of Mingus's most famous tunes, Better Get It In Your Soul, and it's kind of like a revival meeting feel to it. Really cool stuff from Ethan Fillion. And it's great to see uh, so many Chicago musicians working together on this material as well. Ethan Fillion presented this during the Chicago Jazz Festival, uh, and since then has, you know, been continuing to play with various groups, but I, I think this is a really promising start for him. Mm-hmm. 
little taste of, of that album Leslie was just talking about. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking with DCB jazz host Paula Bella and Leslie Karras. Uh, we're talking about their favorite jazz albums of the year. And let's turn to Paul. What's next on your list? So uh, it's probably pretty telling that a handful of the same cats that were on Ethan Fillion's disc, Meditations on Mingus, also made their way onto Tim Fitzgerald's Full House. And it's kind of the same idea of, you know, going to take this jazz heavyweight Mount Rushmore type and I'm going to put my own spin on his music. And what Tim did, which was really interesting, was he would take solos and then expand them out like all super sax style, which was this band that would do Charlie Parker solos in like four part harmonies. He would do that. Tim Fitzgerald did the same thing with Wes Montgomery solos. And then people would solo after the West Montgomery solely kind of things. But yeah, Victor Garcia's on this. Christian Dillingham's on this. Just the, the, the lineup on both these records, Ethan Fillion's and Tim Fitzgerald's records, are just absolutely uh, outstanding. And, and to hear somebody dig into West Montgomery's music like this and kind of take it to a bit different of a place. I mean, man, that doesn't deserve to be on a top five or top three list. I don't know what does. Nice. And we're going to close out, uh, Leslie, with your final pick, which uh, this is an album from Deanna Witkowski, Force of Nature. And I think, so you interviewed her, right? And we did a, you did, did a piece for the arts section with her, right? This is a Mary Lou Williams project. That's right. That's right. I talked with Deanna in March, a couple months after the album came out. And the recording is a companion to a Mary Lou Williams biography that Deanna Witkowski um, released in September of 2021 and actually won some awards this year for that biography. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. Deanna Witkowski first learned about Mary Lou Williams when she was uh, invited to perform at a festival named for Mary Lou Williams in the year 2000 by the festival director, Dr. Billy Taylor. And Deanna decided, well, I ought to learn about Mary Lou Williams <laughs> if I'm performing at her festival. And ever since, she's studied um, her work and found a lot of commonality. Um, Deanna Witkowski got her start in New York, for example, after school um, as a church choral director. And so Mary Lou Williams, of course, composed three masses herself. And so she found a lot of common ground, so much so that Deanna Witkowski decided to move from New York City to Pittsburgh, which was uh, Mary Lou Williams' hometown, uh, during the pandemic. And that's when she completed her research on the biography and then subsequently recorded um, this album, Force of Nature. That's like hardcore. We read about actors doing method, you know, to try to get in character, but to, to move to the hometown of uh, the person you're studying. Well, and Deanna, actually, she got her start at Wheaton College. That's right. And Paul. Mm-hmm. Right. And the funny thing is about her time at Wheaton was she was such a powerhouse of a pianist that they that was the moment when they went, okay, we'll let people start playing jazz here. <laughs> and uh, is the story that I was told by one of her instructors that was the, that was at Wheaton, and then she did Rhapsody in Blue for her recital. So yeah, and that's another, so getting back to the church thing, it's kind of like it all comes around, and I was kind of shocked to find out that Deanna didn't already know about Mary Lou Williams when she was at Wheaton, where they, you know, kind of like in that same kind of thing of, you know, riding, true, the, true. The, riding the church and jazz at the same time. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Okay, so this year we kind of we limited the the list to the three each, uh, but we're gonna just quickly go through some honorable mentions. And I did want to start with you, Paul, because one of the artists you're gonna highlight, Jasmia Horn. That's got to be the the best name for a jazz musician ever. Yeah, close to it. Uh, so she puts out this album this past year, Dear Love. I mentioned it uh, when we first started talking. Her Noble Force is the name of the band, so no humility there, which I'm okay with. Um, and, you know, just decided that she was going to put together this whole band. She was going to do most of the arrangements. She was going to do a whole lot of the writing, including this tune. It, it, so basically, this thing is on my honorable mention. There's other good songs on the record, don't get me wrong. But Where Is Freedom, it still stands as my favorite single favorite tune of 2022. She, like, fully chaka cons it up. <laughs> like, it, it's it's a rager. I, I wish more jazz besides Art Blakey and Mingus and that tune went to that space because life would be better. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's called Where is Freedom. That that gets that gets her an honorable mention alone just for that one tune. But, but do you like it? Just, you know, maybe a little bit. <laughs> um, okay, so that's one honorable mention. Leslie, what's on your honorable mention list? Well, another Chicago artist, Marcus Carroll, uh, he's got another album out called Foundations. This, I believe, is his second album as a leader. And the interesting thing to me, too, is that he recorded this one at around the same time as the other one uh, that we played that came out last year, The Ancestor's Call. And the two albums are could not be more different in style and approach, um, but they're both concept albums, and they're both kind of paying homage to people who have influenced him. The Ancestors Call, obviously, kind of a broader look at that. And Foundations, his uh, album from 2022, um, paying tribute to a lot of people in his own family. And so he had them in mind as he composed the music. And uh, again, it's just a very solid album and very playable. And he does take some risks on this one too, especially with a a 10-minute take um, on on Green Dolphin Street, and it's uh, quite a while into the tune before you realize what tune it is, which yeah. I like. Paul, why don't you run through a few of yours because I know you have more. Uh, well, Chucho Valdez and Paquito de Rivera, uh, two of the original members of Iraquere, this very legendary uh, Cuban jazz ensemble. Um, so, just due to politics, Paquito was one of the members that. Uh, hightailed it to the U.S. when they had a chance. Chucho stayed behind, so they didn't talk for like 40 years. Um, and finally, somebody got them back in the same room together with a whole bunch of Cuban all-stars. And they just, sparks just flew on that record. It's great. Um, I was halfway considering doing an all-Latin best of because there were so many great Afro-Cuban records that came out this year. Uh, I Missed You Too by Chucho and Piquito. Uh, the Conrad Herwig tribute to Mingus was amazing from right here in Chicago. Again, we talk about all the great music coming out of town. Uh, Joe Sonnefeld uh, and his heartfelt tribute to Ruben Alvarez, a band called Raices Latin Jazz. They did a self-titled album this year. Um, so, I mean, that's just, you know, we could do a best of, of all Chicago folks. Ben Patterson, actually on Samara Joy's record. Um, so everything comes back to Chicago. It's like Rome, but with better pizza. <laughs> that might be debatable by some people, <laughs> the pizza part. And I did want to highlight really quickly uh, at the top of the segment, I was playing a, a song off Domi and JD's album, Not Tight, and you have uh, you have that album in your honorable mentions, Paul. That's a, it's a great record, and it's, again, like we're talking about Samara Joy being a young talent. Domi and JD, I don't know if either of them can drink yet. 
um, <laughs> legally anyway. Right. right. Uh, so, but they're you know they're they're doing stuff with Thundercat. They're doing stuff with Herbie, yep. and they're just they're great. Um, so the future of jazz, ladies and gentlemen, between Samara Joy, Domi, and JD, some of these other young from Ethan Fillion. Man, we are in good hands. We might be in the best hands jazz-wise that we've been in. For years. For years. Mm -hmm, I agree. Wow. Okay. Well, that's uh, promising. It's always fun to to talk with you guys at the end of the year for things uh, listeners might have missed, though, if they listen to WDCB, they'll... They'll be hearing a lot of these artists. And then are these lists, are they on the, in the Jazz Lounge on WDCB.org? They, they are. Uh, so it's so the folks in the marketing department, they rechristened what's new on WDCB as what's been on WDCB. Ah, okay. So, there. Makes sense. Week. Leslie, Paul, thanks so much. And thank you, Gary. Thank you. <laughs> that was Paula Bella and Leslie Karras. You can hear them right here on WDCB Monday through Friday. And you can find their favorite albums of 2022 in the Jazz Lounge on WDCB.org. This is the uh, Jasmia horn tune Paul was talking about. Where is freedom? That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Happy New Year. Thanks for spending some of your Sunday with me. So what are you free? Where's freedom? Freedom's in your soul. Let your soul be free.